Today's reading is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 3 through 14. And you can read it in your bulletin or find that in your Bibles. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Uh, if you came this morning expecting a romantic Valentine's Day sermon, I hope you'll come back and join us next year when I will be preaching from selected verses from the Song of Solomon. <laughs> but this morning, we are going to be tackling a tough topic, one of the most difficult in all of Paul's letters. And so let's open in prayer. Father, um, who is sufficient for these things? You know that I'm not, but you know that your Holy Spirit is. So Holy Spirit, come. Invade our hearts and teach us so that we might become more like our Savior. And it's in his name we pray. In these verses, the Apostle Paul writes to people that he calls dearly loved children of God. He's not writing to people who are unbelievers. He's writing to folks like most of you who are Christians. And <clears throat> what does he say to them? He says, among you there should not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any impurity or greed or covetousness. And he goes on, nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk or coarse, coarse jesting. And then the punchline, no impure, immoral or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of God or Christ. To paraphrase a well-known Seinfeld character, is Paul saying, no heaven for you? Whether you're a Christian today or just tuning in to learn something about the Christian faith, 
How are we to understand these words? How should we interpret them? This is going to be what I would call an unorthodox message this morning before, because before we get to what Paul means, we are going to talk about three things he does not mean, three things that he cannot mean. First, Paul does not mean that you are saved by your good deeds. Yet a recent Pew Research poll shows that many Americans still cling to the idea that if you want to go to heaven, you just need to be a good person. Nothing against good people, but Paul does not mean to say that you're saved by your good deeds. Ross Douthat of the New York Times said the idea that the good are in and the bad are out is an example of what he calls bad religion and helps to explain how we've become a nation of heretics. So why do so many people still believe the good are in and the bad are out? One of Freud's closest colleagues, Otto Rank, had an answer. After a lifetime of clinical research, he concluded that this view is a symptom of what he calls man's spiritual need, need for goodness. We have the spiritual need for goodness. It seems like our hearts have this longing to feel good and right about ourselves, but there are many different kinds of good. As Chesterton said, if a man were to shoot his grandmother at a distance of 500 yards, I would call him a good shot, but not necessarily a good person. We have the spiritual need to feel good about ourselves, yet when it comes to our self-concept, we are stubbornly self-protective. And there are strong psychological reasons that keep us from admitting threatening truths about ourselves. Martin Luther put it this way, human beings by nature, when they get near death or danger, will examine their own worthiness. We defend ourselves by recounting our good deeds and moral efforts, but then the remembrance of sin inevitably comes to mind and this tears us apart and we think, how many errors and sins and wrongs have I done? Please God, let me live so I can fix and amend them. The troubled conscience has no cure for its desperation and feeling of unworthiness. What Luther is saying is that all the good you will ever do will not erase all the bad you have ever done. We have this spiritual need to feel good and right about ourselves, and our inner lawyer will seek reasons to defend ourselves and our actions and our behaviors and our choices. But then our conscience, the inner judge, charges us, convicts us, and would seek to condemn us. I don't know about you, but my inner lawyer is no match for my inner inner judge, my inner conscience. And what Luther is saying is that you need, I need, we need an inner voice that outranks our conscience. But let's just say for the sake of argument that you could earn your way into heaven, that you could be good enough. How good is good enough? Jesus answers that question plainly and says, be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And we object and say, that's not fair. Nobody's perfect. What is stunning is that in the face 
of the, uh, what in the face of an impossibly high bar of perfection, many, maybe most, still Americans still cling to the idea that the good people are in and the bad people are out. And yet the Bible says for certain this is a wrong belief. Do you remember earlier in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. What is grace? We talk about it here a lot. It is God's unmerited favor. Do you want to remember how to under remember it? God's riches at Christ's expense. Paul tells us that no one is saved by their good deeds or their religious performance. As the old reformers used to say, anyone that is saved is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. In Galatians 2, Paul says, do not set aside the grace of God, because if righteousness could be gained through your religious performance, Christ died for nothing. And this points us to the second reason we know that Paul cannot be telling us that we are saved by our good deeds. Pop quiz. What is the scarcest commodity in all of the world? It's righteousness. It's righteousness. Paul says to the church in Rome, there is no one righteous, not even one. Righteousness is not a commodity that you can earn. Isaiah said, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. In this world, you may be able to put a lot of impressive credentials on your resume, but there's one thing that you will never be able to put on your resume, and that is righteousness. Man is in desperate need for righteousness, and deep down, he knows it. That's what... The theologian Bruce Springsteen meant when he said, everybody's got a hungry heart. We seek to satisfy our hungers, our heart's hunger for righteousness by assuring ourselves that we are significant. We're valuable. We matter. We tell ourselves, I'm a worthwhile person. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. Some will try to assure themselves of their righteousness by amassing fortune or fame. Others by building an empire, being a solid citizen, a good provider. We pay our taxes. We have a family that spans three generations. We have most, the most Twitter followers. And still others will look to their religious performance and service to their community, their generosity to their neighbors or commitment to certain causes, or even today their political ideologies. As Governor Andrew Cuomo once said, I believe that when you get to the pearly gates, our Lord will ask, have you been a good progressive? To which Joseph Bottom responds, we live in an age where the political has been transformed into the soteriological, where how we vote is how our souls are saved. You know that the days are dark when we live in a time where how a person votes determines how they assure themselves of their own righteousness. To be fair, worldly righteousness can open some doors for you. It can open the doors of power and influence, but it cannot and it will not open the pearly gates for you. 
When it comes to the subject of righteousness, Jesus seems to be saying conflicting things. On the one hand, he points to the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, and he says, these are the people that thought that they could earn their righteousness through strict observance of religious laws. And he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. So what's he saying to us? Just try harder. On the other hand, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. If we can't earn our righteousness through religious performance, how can we be filled with righteousness? Homer Simpson was on the right track when he said, pointing to the Bible, everyone in this book is messed up, except for that one guy. Theologian A.W. Tozer said the same thing a bit more elegantly. Shortly before his death, Tozer sent a telegram to a friend saying, I'm so grateful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Active obedience refers to Jesus' perfect obedience to the moral law of God. He was without sin. Jesus alone in the history of the world is the only person whose active obedience was flawless. He alone earned his righteousness, and he alone can list righteousness on his resume. Tozer said that there's no hope of being saved from the wrath of God without righteousness. Can I give you a piece of free pastoral advice? If you plan to die anytime, let's say within the next hundred years, you're going to need some righteousness. But in, the man who calls himself good, who sees himself as a good person, is proud. He's full of himself. He has a type of righteousness, and it's called self-righteousness. Everyone needs righteousness, but not everyone wants it. Until that you see that you need it, you will never want it. And the only place that you can get it is from the only person that has it. Jesus has righteousness enough to spare for everyone who comes to him hungering and thirsting for righteousness. How do we receive this? We receive the gift of righteousness passively, passively as one receives a gift. And that's what Paul meant in Romans chapter 5 when he said, we receive the gift of righteousness. Do you know the joy of being considered righteous in the sight of God? The prophet Isaiah did. He begins his book saying, woe to me, me, I am a man of unclean lips. I am undone, I am a sinner. How can I hope to stand before a holy God? And by the end of the book, his tone has completely changed. And he says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation, and he has arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. The old prophet could scarcely contain himself because he understood that he had been clothed in the righteousness of God, and we can know the same joy. Hundreds of years later, the apostle Paul understood what Isaiah had only dimly grasped. He writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 
God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul is referring to what theologians call the great exchange. At the cross, my sin was placed on Christ and his active obedience, his righteousness, was placed on me. And the righteousness of Christ is the best gift you can ever receive. Now, there's a third thing that we know that Paul cannot be saying in these verses, and that is that you can lose your salvation. So, hypothetically, that's a lawyer, way a lawyer starts talking. Hypothetically, if you could earn your salvation, then you could lose your salvation. But, since you cannot earn it, you cannot lose it. Does that sound a little bit like lawyer talk? This is what Jesus has to say. All the Father has given to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will lose none of all the Father has given me, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is a friend of sinners, and he says to all those who may be on the fence trying to decide whether to believe or to not believe, he says, I don't care who you are, I don't care where you've been, and I don't care what you've done. If you want a seat at the table, if you want a seat at my table, you come. You come to me. I love this story of an old Scottish theologian, John Duncan, who happened to be visiting a church in Denver one Sunday, and on this morning as the communion elements were passed, he noticed a young lady seated in the row ahead of him and she was weeping softly and seemed to be gripped with guilt and feelings of her own unworthiness. And when the cup was passed, he noticed that she turned her head and motioned to the elder to take the cup away. She couldn't drink it. And the old man reached over, gently touched her on the shoulder, and whispered to her, take it, lassie, it's for sinners. And there you, there you have it. There it is. Do you want an inner voice that outranks your conscience? We hear it in the echo of this old man's voice. Take it, lassie. Take it, laddie. Come, lassie. Come, laddie. Come to Jesus. He's meant for sinners. At the cross, the body of Christ was not broken for the proud, people who see themselves as good. No, the blood of Christ was shed for the humble, people who know they're not good enough. And the Spirit whispers us to us through the word saying, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So if you're a Christian here today, Jesus did not die on the cross to give you contingent salvation. Salvation that is contingent upon your personal, perpetual perfect performance. Jesus came not to give you the possibility of salvation. He came to make your salvation certain, permanent, and irrevocable. As Paul said in Romans, nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So there's three things we know he can't mean. Number one, you're not saved by your good deeds or religious performance, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Every heart in this room and outside 
hungers for righteousness. We long to be a valuable and worthwhile purpose, a person, and we will pursue so many different things to try to assure ourselves of our own righteousness. But scripture says that those and only those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Christ, only they will be filled, only their thirst will be satisfied. And finally, if you have been saved by Jesus, you cannot, you will not lose your salvation. As Jesus said, I shall lose none of all that the Father has given me. And 2,000 years later, none still means none. So we've learned what these verses don't mean. In the process, we've also discovered a valuable lesson about interpreting the Bible. So let's say that you're in a small group Bible study and you come to a verse that's hard to square with another verse that you've read. What should you do? You probably don't want to go to the person to your right and say, well, what does this verse mean to you? Or the person to your left and say, well, what does it mean to you? One person says, well, to me it means this and to me it means that. If it can mean anything to everyone, it means nothing. There is one meaning to each verse in Scripture with many applications, and to arrive at the meaning, we must always consider who the writer is, the context of the verse, and we almost always, as we've done today, let Scripture interpret Scripture. So let's turn our attention back to the one thing Paul is talking about in these verses. In verse 1, Paul says, be imitators of Christ. Then he says, live as children of light. As our hearts are gripped more and more by the reality of what God has done for us on the cross, we increasingly want to live a life of thanksgiving, a life to honor our Savior. And so Paul says, cast off the verbal sins of obscenity, cursing, foolish talk, coarse, coarse jesting, and dirty jokes, along with sexual immorality, impurity, and greed, which the scripture today calls covetousness. What is he referring to? He's referring to the process of sanctification. It begins when we're born again. As Paul said, when the sleeper awakens. And it continues throughout the believer's life. Sanctification is our practical response to the love and grace of God expressed to us at the cross. It's the transformation of the believer's will, desires, and affection through the inner working of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit on our hearts and minds. And Paul is exhorting Christians in the sternest terms about our sanctification. Sanctification is not optional. Our longing for holiness should increasingly set us apart from the longings and the values of the world. But we need to remember that sanctification, our response to the cross, is not the cause of our salvation. Sanctification is not the cause, it's the fruit of our salvation. We don't work to earn our salvation. As Dallard Willard said, the gospel is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude and effort is an action. One question remains, why does Paul single out sexual immorality impurity and greed above all other sins that he could have mentioned, like lying or stealing? We understand that in the context of marriage, sexual immorality and impurity will crush your spouse. 
If your spouse finds you looking at porn or fantasizing over the most recent edition of the Victoria's Secrets catalog, or staring at another woman or man, as the case may be, it's like you're saying to them, you're not enough. I wish you were more. In the context of our relationship with God, greed or covetousness is, is the exact same thing, but we fail to grasp it because we fail to grasp the, and understand the nature, the intimate nature of our relationship with God. Most of us tend to relate to God as a king or a judge or a shepherd or even a boss, but do you remember what the prophet Isaiah told the Israelites? He said, don't be afraid, for your maker is your husband. In the marriage relationship, we understand that there must be exclusivity in the sexual realm. It's not kosher to have a girlfriend or a boyfriend on the side. In our relationship with God, there must be exclusivity in the realm of our worship. It's not kosher to have idols on the side. Speaking for God, the prophet Jeremiah explains, like a woman who has been unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me. God equates the worship of idols with spiritual adultery. And in this crowd, a crowd this size, there may be some who know what it feels like to have a spouse that's been unfaithful to them. And to you this morning, God says, I know how you feel. I know how you feel. And to all the rest of us, he says, now you know how it feels to be me. Paul says greed is idolatry. How can that be? The Bible tells us that our first allegiance, our highest allegiance, ought to be to our Redeemer, to God and our Creator. And if the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then it stands to reason that the greatest sin would be to love anything or anyone instead of or more than God. Jesus said no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. When Paul talks about covetousness or greed, he's, this is not a minor infraction. It grieves the Holy Spirit because it's your heart saying in a real way, I wish you were more. I'm going to put myself in the arms of another lover. You're not enough for me. The Puritan father, Stephen Sharnock, understood sadly that all men worship some golden calf. We do this in the mistaken belief that I, an idol will satisfy our heart's deep hunger for righteousness, whether we worship the gods of fortune or fame or the gods of political ideology. When our hearts worship anything besides God or instead of God or more than God, it's like us saying, you're not enough. I wish you were more. And that is why Paul is so stern in his words. In this chapter, Paul says we are to imitate Christ. But if Jesus is only an example that we must follow, and, or we're out, that example will crush us. But Paul also says we are God's possession. He's not just an example. 
He's our redeemer. And elsewhere in scripture, it refers to God, the believers as God's treasured possession. And if you're here, a Christian here this morning, you may not feel like it. Most days I don't. But you are God's treasured possession, bought at a price, purchased not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish. As we sang just a minute ago, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. In this world, we will die to purchase what we treasure. Jesus is the only treasure who died to purchase you. So friends, God accepts us as we are, but he does not intend to leave us as we are. We are to live as children of life. But when we sin, and we will, John says, confess your sins to the Lord, and he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. As the psalmist said, a humble and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. The heart's pathway back to God is marked repentance. Luther said all of life is repentance, and today it would be my prayer for all of us that the beauty of our Savior's steadfast love for us would recapture our hearts away from the idols that have charmed us and return our hearts back, back to the lover of our soul. Join me in, in closing prayer. Father, you sent your son to pay a debt he didn't owe for those of us who owed a debt we couldn't pay. It is hard for us to wrap our minds around the idea that we could be your treasured possession, and yet that is what you say we are. And so I pray that the reality of your love for us, that your delight in us, might cause our hearts to delight more and more in you. For you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.